Good morning. If you can find our seats, we'll get started this morning. If you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. If you would, Ephesians 1, verse 11, read along with me. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If you would pray with me this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we praise your name, Lord. We glorify you, Lord, as we have gone through this amazing doxology, this praise of you, this one sentence, Lord, that shows the blessings you have poured out on us, Lord, all to your glory. God, I pray as we come to an end of this sentence, Lord, of this doxology, of this portion of Scripture, that we are just amazed, Lord, at how blessed, how privileged we are by your mercy and grace, Lord. Be with us this morning, Lord, as we go through this, this, this passage, and I just pray that you are glorified in your Son's name. Amen. We are finishing this doxology this morning, this massive sentence, this praise to God for the blessings he has poured out on us, and I hope you feel blessed. In the last few weeks, just studying this portion of Scripture has made me feel so blessed, realizing how blessed I truly am. I hope you feel blessed, past, present, future, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, from eternity past, God the Father chose us, he set his affections on us from eternity past, predestined us to adoption. In other words, God planned out our salvation. In this present age, Jesus, as we've been talking about, redeemed us. He, he bought us out of slavery, slavery to sin. He forgave us our sins by his death on the cross. Jesus accomplished our salvation. And today we're going to be looking at the promised future, the Holy Spirit who sealed us and is our down payment to a guaranteed future inheritance. We're going to be spending most of our time on that portion of Scripture, but really we're going to spend most of our time on one word and one concept, and that concept is hope. Hope. So I have three points this morning on our sermon. The first point is this, our hope of a glorious inheritance. The second point is our hope to the glory of God. And our third point is our hope that is guaranteed. So if you would, our first point, our, our hope of a glorious inheritance. Look at Ephesians 1.11. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Now this is a very tricky verse, very tricky sentence in, in translating in the Greek. There's really two possible translations The ESV, which I just read, is in him we have obtained an inheritance. In other words, Christians, those that have believed, that have put their faith in Christ, are promised an inheritance, are given an inheritance. The ASV, the American Standard Version, says this, in him we we were made an inheritance. In other words, Christians are God's inheritance. To be honest, as I've studied this, 
portion of scripture right here, I don't know which way it should be translated for sure. There's good arguments on both sides, so I just want to do my best to, to kind of give both arguments this morning and then explain why I pick, prefer one over the other or I think one um, fits the context better than the other. But to do that, I just want to warn you, it's going to get a little technical to start off this morning. One of the reasons it's a hard phrase to translate, we have obtained an inheritance, is because it comes from one Greek word. One Greek word for that whole phrase, ekleirothamen, which only occurs once in all of the New Testament here. So we don't have any New Testament context to really try to figure out what this word means. It only occurs three times in the whole Old Testament, Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the New, Old Testament. And it's translated in those three times either to take by lot, like casting lots, to take by lot, or to acquire, to acquire. So we have to look at Greek literature to see what the culture would have translated this word when Paul wrote it. And there's two meanings that you see in Greek literature. The first meaning is this, to appoint by lot, to cast lots, or to choose by lot. The second meaning is to a lot, to assign, or to a point. Therefore, in the context of this, this verse and passage, the first meaning would be something like this, to be chosen by divine choice or by lot, because by choosing by lots was being chosen by divine choice. The N- NIV actually translates it this way, if, you look at, if you're looking at your NIV right now. The second meaning is to give or to be given something by divine choice. This is how most translations, and I believe most, from what I've read, most theologians and Greek experts, this is what they think this this word means in this passage, and it's in the passive voice, which means it's something happening to us. We're not actively doing something, it's something that's happening to us. So there's really two options in translating this. Passively, we have been made God's inheritance or allotment by his choice. Look at verse 11. In the ASV, it's translated this way. In whom also we were made a heritage or inheritance. The ASV, again, that's how they translate it. We were made an inheritance. We're God's inheritance. And this has a ton of biblical support. We are God's inheritance. Deuteronomy 4.20 says this, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of Um, an iron furnace out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. In other words, God's people are his his inheritance. He bought them out of slavery. He owns them. Psalms 33.12 says, Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. And there's more and more verses that support this. But I personally lean towards the second option, The second translation, which is passively, we have been given an inheritance by God's choice. This is how the ESV and the NASB and other translations translate it. The ESV says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. In other words, in him we were chosen to be given an inheritance. Again, there's biblical support on this. 1 Peter 1, 3-4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, 
kept in heaven for you. Or if you just look at Ephesians 1, 14, look at verse 14. Who is the guarantee, the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. I really personally lean this way because I, I agree with the ESV, in other words. In him we have obtained an inheritance for two main reasons. First, it really fits the focus of the sentence, right? The doxology, which is the praise of God's glory because of the blessings he has given to us. Verse 3, blessed, in other words, praise God. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I believe that every spiritual blessing is our inheritance. Praise God for the inheritance, the blessings he, he has blessed us with. The second reason I think this is the correct translation because it, it's because it, this interpretation agrees with Colossians 1.12. And remember, and I think this is important, that these two letters were written at the same time, Colossians and Ephesians, and they're very similar. They mirror each other, which is great for us because they clarify each other. When we have questions, we can look back and forth and see what Paul was saying. This is what it says in Colossians 1.12. Given thanks, in other words, praise God, praise the Father, giving thanks to the Father who acquired to you to share in the inheritance, or I'm sorry, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Therefore, in Christ, we have been promised a glorious inheritance. Why? Because God has adopted us into his family. Look at Ephesians again, 1, 5, verse 5. In love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. I mean, I don't think we quite understand how amazing that is. Galatians 4, 7 says this, so you are no longer a slave. In other words, you've been set free. You're not a slave of sin anymore. The price has been paid. You've been redeemed. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I think more remarkable than that is actually Romans 8.15, which says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. You hear what that said? Co-heirs with Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. And that's amazing. I don't think we have any idea how much we are promised in our salvation and adoption and redemption. What, it mean, what does it mean to be co-heirs with Christ, fellow heirs with Christ? And I spent a lot of time just studying this because I'm, I wanted to know what that meant. And, and I just want to read you a portion of a systematic theology book called Biblical Doctrine because I think it just words it so well. It says this, in addition to all these privileges that we enjoy in the present time, our adoption as children of God also guarantees us a share to the future inheritance of eternal life. Paul writes that we are adopted children, 
then we must also be heirs. We are no longer slaves, but sons, and if sons, then an heir through God, Galatians 4, 7. And what is an heir? Well, in human relations, son and daughters inherit the estate of their parents at the time of their passing. All that belongs to the parents is bestowed on the children as they carry on the family's name and legacy. Right? Everything from a parent's passed down to the child when they die, that's what it means to inherit, to be an heir. In a similar way, though by nature we had no right to claim all the riches of the kingdom of God, by grace we have become God's adopted children and have thus become legal heirs of an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, 1 Peter 1.4. So real is our inheritance that we are described as fellow heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17. In other words, Christ's inheritance becomes our inheritance. Everything that is Christ, what was received by divine right as God's natural son, we will receive by divine grace as adopted children of God. Because Christ is God's son, All that the Father has belongs to him, and because we are in Christ, everything that is Christ is ours. I mean, is that really true? I like read that. I'm like, everything that is Christ is ours? All of his blessings for being a faithful, obedient son becomes our blessings? I mean, think what was promised to Christ for faithful obedience. What was promised to him for his faithfulness? Everything. Everything. The Great Commission says, all authority has been given to me. Right? God the Father has given me. All authority has been given to me. That's, that's Matthew 28, 18. In fact, actually, look at Ephesians chapter 1, 19. You're, you should be there. Verse 19, it says this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. You know what that means? He gave him everything. All authority. He's at the right hand of God. Verse 21, far above all the rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, the one to come. What did God give his faithful son for his obedience? Verse 20, he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Now look at Ephesians 2.4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. In other words, just like Christ, he raised us from the dead Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Where is Christ seated? Right hand of God. The author of the Systematic Theology book continues, the redeemed are so sure to enjoy all the blessings of heaven in God's presence for God's promise that whoever overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Revelations 21, 7. 
Listen, in the Old Testament, we've talked about this. No one dared call God Father. Because they knew what that meant. It meant that they were heirs of, of God. No one dared call God Father. And then Jesus comes in the New Testament. It's the only thing he calls God. But here's the, the amazing thing. Right? That makes sense. He is the Son of God. We Christians in Christ get that same privilege. The more I studied this inheritance that we're promised, the more I just was amazed. And there's so much mystery here, I'm not trying to claim that I have all the details of what that means. But one thing I do know, the greatness of this promise, this promised inheritance, is far beyond our comprehension. Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance. There's one more thing I want to point out from this phrase, this one word. It's in the aorist tense, which is like our past tense. That's why they put it in past tense here. The aorist tense in Greek just shows a completed action, something that's completed. This promised inheritance is so sure, in other words, Paul purposely speaks of it as if it's already been given. Right, this was common in Greek literature to put something so sure in the past tense. Look at Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance so sure it's in the past tense, it's in the completed tense. And why is Paul so sure of this great inheritance that we will receive it? Because God's in control. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We've spent a lot of time on predestination, but I want to look at the second part of this verse. It says, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, God's in control of everything. This verse is saying God will do everything in his power to make sure we get this inheritance. How powerful is God? It's all powerful, endless power, completely sovereign. He is in control of every single thing. He works all things together to the counsel of his will, and his will is that we will get this inheritance and he will be glorified. Therefore, we have hope. We have hope. We have hope of a glorious inheritance. We have a hope of a glorious future. And that leads to the second point this morning. Our hope to the glory of God. Why does God do all of this? Why is he so gracious to us? Why does he continue just to pour so much blessing on us? It's just blessing after blessing after blessing. And I'm reading through Ephesians 1, and you just see all this grace that is poured out on us. And Paul is reminding us over and over again why. That he would be glorified. Look at verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So that God would be glorified. It's a reason for all of this. It's a reason God has redeemed us. It's a reason God has forgave us. It's a reason God has graced us. It's a reason God has given us wisdom. It's a reason God has given us insight. It's a reason God has revealed his will. It's a reason God has revealed the end. It's a reason God has promised us this future inheritance so that we who first hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory so that he would be glorified. 
That's why God does everything. He made us. He redeemed us. He saved us. He is gracious towards us so that he would be glorified. There's an interesting part of this phrase in verse 21. There's a part that's put in the middle here. It's actually in the end in Greek. In verse 12 it says, so that, and then it gets to this phrase, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of, of, of his glory. We who were the first to hope in Christ might be. In other words, when we were saved, we were given hope. Right? A hope of a future inheritance, a hope of a future eternity, a hope of a, a future promised everlasting joy. We were given hope when we were saved, and that hope glorifies God. Look what it says. He, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Our hope glorifies God. Our hope glorifies God. How? How? Simply, it says, our hope says, God, you are trustworthy. Our hope says, God, you are faithful. You're trustworthy. I can trust you. When Adam and Eve sinned, and when any one of us sins, we say, Adam and Eve said, in their hearts and in their actions, God, you're not trustworthy. Don't eat this fruit. I don't trust you. That's why sin's so bad. I mean, the, the only thing Adam and Eve did was take a bite of some fruit. I'm guessing an apple. But it's the heart behind it that was so rebellious. You're not trustworthy. It's attack on God's character. Hope does the opposite. Hope says, God, you are trustworthy. Every time we hope, we are trusting God, trusting that he is faithful, trusting that he is truthful. And that hope brings glory to God. It shows he is trustworthy. It praises his glorious character. I asked the question last week, in the small group questions, and it goes, it went like this, and just, you might have discussed this in your small groups. If God is the great giver, which I've been saying as we've been going through Ephesians chapter 1, and we've been just seeing grace upon grace upon grace, God just giving and giving and giving, and we just receiving and receiving and receiving. If God is the great giver, and we are the great receivers, why are we called to sacrifice so much? I mean, we're called to sacrifice everything, right? Give our lives, in Scripture. Take up your cross and follow me, Matthew 16. Right? Sacrifice your life. Everything. If they persecute, persecuted me, they will also persecute you, John 15. Right? Count the cost, John 14. Count the cost before you follow me because it's going to cost. Luke 14, 33. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Listen, every disciple, right, every apostle of Jesus died a martyr's death besides John, who historically, they say, was boiled and somehow lived through it and then was thrown into prison. They all suffered. They all sacrificed. They all gave everything. So how is God the great giver then? Why are we called to sacrifice so much? 
Why are we called to give our lives? How is God still the great giver, if that's the case? You know what the answer is? Hope. Hope. We sacrifice and give with the hope of a greater reward. We sacrifice and give with the hope of a greater reward. And I know some of you are struggling right now with this. And the struggle you have, I I don't think, comes from Scripture. And we'll talk about that. So let me just back this up with Scripture. Right? Who's our greatest example? Jesus, who sacrificed everything. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And I know I go over this verse a lot, but this is such an important portion of Scripture. Hebrews 12, verse 1. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What is that? That's a Christian's life, right? That's, a, that's how we're supposed to run the race. That's how we're supposed to live as followers of Christ. And then it says in verse 2, looking to Jesus, of course, he's our example. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, for the hope of joy on the other end of the cross, he sacrificed everything. Because God is the great giver and he trusted him. For, for, for a great reward seated at the right hand of God, he adored the shame Because he trusted his father. Jesus is not our only example. What about Moses? Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. Just go back a couple of pages probably in your Bibles. Chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, In other words, all the riches he has as being in the royal family in Egypt refused that. What did he do instead? Verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And let me be clear, sin is pleasurable, but it's fleeting. It's fleeting. And Moses figured that out. And so he he sacrificed everything and said, I want to be known with God's people Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses had this hope of a great reward, therefore he sacrificed everything. And it's not just Jesus and Moses, but Paul. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. And Paul says, but, but whatever gain I had, and, and what gain did Paul have? A lot. He was wealthy. Pharisees were wealthy. He was wealthy. He was well-respected. And people may not have liked him because of how legalistic he was, but everyone wanted to be him because of his honor. 
Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And I want to be clear, this is not works-based salvation. Paul was already saved at this point. Right? And he was saved by grace through faith. But here he was trusting God, willing to sacrifice everything to grow closer to Christ because he loved Christ. And Paul had a burning desire to be joy-filled in Christ. That's why he says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is getting. It's getting. It's gain. It's reward. To die is gain. To give my life is gain. Right? To give is to receive, in other words. <laughs> I believe Paul was the most joy-filled person that walked the face of this earth next to Jesus. Next to Jesus. Just read Philippians. And that's because he had hope. It's because he had hope of a future grace. He had hope of a future joy and reward given to him by the great giver. He had hope. And that hope carried him joyfully through all types of suffering and sacrifice. Listen, I believe most Christians have an unbiblical understanding of why we should obey God. And I think we wrestle with this. I know I wrestle with it in my own heart. I think most Christians would say we should obey God because it's our duty. We should obey God because it's our duty, because he is God and and we are not. It's our duty and we should never expect benefits. We should never expect benefits. That last part right there is unbiblical. It's pharisaical. It robs God of his glory. And I so badly want to get rid of it at our church. I want to get rid of it throughout all of Christianity. Where did that belief come from? Honestly, I don't think it comes anywhere from Scripture. It comes from more than anything else, modern philosophy. There's a man, Immanuel Kant, 18th century philosopher, one of the most influential philosophers and persons in all of Western civilization. You know, I don't have time to go through his philosophy of ethics, the categorical imperative, but Kant spent a lot of time studying ethics to explain ethics outside of religion. He wanted to explain ethics from pure reason, outside of religion, outside of Scripture, and this is what Kant came up with outside of Scripture. Kant said, an action is moral only if it's out of a sense of duty and derives no benefit of any sort, neither material or spiritual. In other words, it must be 100% selfless. If I do something with any thought of getting, I've negated the goodness of that action. Kant said, any benefit, any benefit destroys the moral value of that action. In other words, if there's any benefit towards me for doing it, then I've done it for wrong reasons. For an action to be moral, it must be completely selfless. No thought of getting. 
I just want to be clear, that's unbiblical. That's unbiblical. It comes from secular philosophy, because Paul said to die is what? Getting. To die is gain. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote, and this is a famous quote from The Weight of Glory. If you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest virtue, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you would ask almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what happened? A positive term, loved, has been substituted with a negative, unselfishness. And this is more than a philological importance or a philosophical importance. I mean, think about it. What is the greatest commandment? The New Testament has a lot to say about self-denial, for sure. But not self-denial as it ends in itself. We are told to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall, what shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. In other words, there's good reason to do that. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion to desire one's own good and to earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it, if that is considered a bad thing... I submit that that notion crept in from Kant and the Stoics and has no part in the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Listen, I want to be joy-filled. I have this burning desire in my soul to be joy-filled. I, I, I want joy, and I'm not ashamed to say, it's why I obey God. It's why I obey God. I trust Another word for that is faith. I have faith that obedience will bring joy. Because I trust, I have faith that God is good. And I trust and I have faith that he wants what's best for me, as a father would. When you obey out of pure duty, let me ask this question. When you obey God out of pure duty because he is God and I am not, who gets that glory? You do. Because you're obeying out of your own willpower. But when you obey out of trust, faith, and hope, right? Hope of a glorious gain, even if it costs my life, to die is gain. Who gets the glory? God does. The great giver. That's why Jesus obeyed. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. In other words, Jesus hoped for joy. On the other side, he was in Gethsemane praying to God, God, I don't want to go through this. If there's any other way, but I trust you, there's joy on the other end. If you say go, I'll go. I want that to be my life's ambition. For the joy set before me, I will obey God. No matter what the cost I want to have so much faith and trust in God that I'm willing to sacrifice everything 
because of hope, because of promise reward, because of promise joy, because of trust in God, because of a promise better future of eternity. I want to be like Paul, to live as Christ and to die as gain. God is the great giver. Gives us an inheritance. He gives us hope of a future. A future eternity. Everlasting joy. And we are the great receivers. He gets all the glory. We get all the joy. We get to enjoy an inheritance forever. You better believe that that hope brings glory to God. It shows that he's trustworthy. Hope shows that he's good. Hope shows that he is gracious towards us. Ephesians 1.12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Listen, our hope praises God. Our hope glorifies God. And our hope is guaranteed. Our third point this morning, our hope that is guaranteed Ephesians 1.13. Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came and, and, and lives within you. It was given to you by God, the great giver. The Greek word for sealed really points to a practice in antiquity. In antiquity, people in authority, especially kings, would have a stamp or a unique mark that they would identify them. They would pour soft wax on a correspondence or a property or a letter. They would stamp it with that unique mark as a seal, sealing the correspondence or a letter to make it clear that the authority of that person or king is protecting this letter really symbolize three things. Ownership, authority, and security. Ownership, authority, and security. Therefore, when God says we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, God is declaring three things for us that are Christians. Ownership, authority, and security. So real quick, ownership. When King sealed the letter with his unique mark, he was saying, this is my letter. This is my letter. In a similar way, when we were sealed by the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit came and lived within us, that was God's unique mark, saying to everyone, they belong to me. They are mine. The moment we put our faith in Christ, we belong to the Lord and we're sealed for eternity as his. The second thing this shows being sealed by the Holy Spirit is authority. When the king put his seal on a letter, he delegated his authority to that letter saying, this letter comes with the authority of the king. Therefore, you better listen to it. When we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, God gave us delegated authority to boldly proclaim truth. One pastor put it this way, when Christians were sealed with the Holy Spirit, they they are delegated to proclaim, teach, minister, and defend God's word and his gospel with the Lord's own authority. When we proclaim the gospel or God's word, we do it with delegated authority. It's why I preach authoritatively. Like, what do I have to say? Nothing. 
It cracks me up sometimes being up here, just thinking a little I... But if I am speaking this and preaching this, I preach it with authority. It's not my authority. It's delegated authority from the king, from God. We need to understand this. It's so important. Because we're losing that idea of authority as Christians. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a familiar verse here at Country Oaks. And it says, the secret things belong to the Lord. In other words, the things that, that God has not revealed to us belong to the Lord They belong to him. But, and this is what I bring this up, I I think we forget the second half of this verse. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all of the words of the law. In other words, we are responsible for the things that have been revealed. We're responsible to live by them And we are responsible to boldly proclaim them. You know, in our culture, to say anything is true for sure and have authority, it it seems arrogant, but it's not arrogant. True humility submits to the word of God and boldly proclaims its truth in love. Therefore, the Holy Spirit's sealing is a delegated authority that's been given to us. It's been shown to us. And lastly, security. Any letter with the keen seal right, is protected by the power and authority of that keen. Therefore, the seal of the Holy Spirit says that we are God's and therefore under his protection. And because God is all-powerful, the seal of the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our future inheritance. That's what verse 14 says. Look at, look at verse 14. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Greek word for guarantee is erabon, which literally means down payment. In the biblical culture, an erabon or a down payment was, was given to someone as a guarantee that the rest of the payment was coming. The Holy Spirit is our erabon. The Holy Spirit is our down payment, our our guarantee of a future inheritance that we will receive. We are so blessed. I hope you feel blessed this morning. I hope every Sunday as we continue to go through Ephesians 1, we just feel blessed. It's blessing after blessing after blessing. We have so much to hope for as Christians. Hope of a guaranteed glorious inheritance. And that hope glorifies God. Ephesians, as we've been saying, the theme of Ephesians, the depth of God's grace, and we've been diving deep. The depth of God's grace lived out in love. And here is my prayer. Because we are so rich, because we are so blessed, because we have so much to hope for, we would be willing to live sacrificially. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Like, what could you take from me? (laughs) That's my prayer. We would love each other sacrificially, willing to to sacrifice everything, even our preferences, for each other within our church. Thinking the best of each other instead of the worst. Putting others before ourselves instead of putting ourselves first. First. And do it with joy-filled hope of a great reward. 
Galatians 5.13 says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And that word serve is, comes from the word doulos, which means bondservant or slave. Strong word. Here's my challenge. I'm going to challenge you with this, and then we'll pray and be done. I want to challenge you to to think of someone that is frustrating you right now. Everyone has someone in their head, right? In their mind. Think of someone, I'm just being honest, think of someone that frustrates you right now. Someone that's frustrating you either from the church, from your family, from your marriage. You got that person? You don't have to say out loud who it is. I want you to ask this question. How can you serve that person? How can you sacrificially love that person? How can you sacrificially prefer that person over your own self? With the hope of great joy on the other end of it. Let's pray. Dear Father God, Lord, I am just amazed by Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, this one sentence that you have inspired Paul to write, this praise that he just couldn't stop, this doxology praising you for the blessings that, that he just couldn't stop, right? He couldn't even put a period. He couldn't take a breath. God, help us just to understand the blessings we have, Lord. God, help us to understand the hope we have that we can go through trials and sacrifices and sufferings, deep, hard sufferings, Lord, with joy, knowing there's hope for the joy set before all of us, Lord, that we would endure all types of sacrifices. God, I pray that we are the most joy-filled church in Tehachapi, just just joy-filled to your glory, Lord, that people would see us and go, what is going on with them? Why do they have so much joy? Why do they have so much hope in this lost world? So that we can point them to you and praise you for your glory. That our hope and joy always points to you, Lord. I pray that we obey, not out of duty, not out of self-will, but out of faith. That you want what's best for us. As a father that loves us. Don't command us to do things just because you want to command us to do things, but you command us to do things because you want what's best for us. Help us to have that mindset and obey you faithfully, Lord, expecting joy from it in this life or the next. Expecting a great reward to to live as Christ and expecting to die is gain, Lord. Help that be our testimony here at Country Oaks. In your son's name, amen.